loving the hell out of the world, the Reverend Hosea Ballou and the Universalists. In transitioning from the last days of October to these first days of November, we have celebrated Dia de los Muertos, Samhain, All Hallows Eve, Halloween, All Saints Day, and All Souls Day. We've built altars, perhaps, had ghoulish fun, trick-or-treating, maybe, or lit candles and perhaps placed them by photos of our dearly departed. I've been especially thinking about our ancestors as we Lux are finally going through mother's boxes of photos, tintypes, and family documents trying to identify and preserve for each of our five families the stories of our relatives and predecessors. Always there are questions, you know that. We wish we'd gotten more clarity. Was Aunt Nana really related to us? If so, how? Is that old man in the yellow photo Aunt Willie's husband or her father? We piecemeal together our recollections of the family stories that mother shared. As Unitarians and Universalists, we have spiritual ancestors that have shaped our belief and our values, our ways of being in the world. We need to repeat these stories often. It seems to me, therefore, it's a good time to share with you one of my favorite Universalist theologians, the Reverend Hosea Ballou. As you remember, in 1961, the Universalist Church of America and the, Unitar and the American Unitarian Church merged their resources, becoming the Unitarian Universalist Association of Congregations, fondly called the UUA. The two churches had much in common. Both religions were of the free church tradition, meaning congregational in governance, no presbyter, bishops, or elders. And both the Unitarians and, and Universalists were religious liberals, not political liberals, religious liberals, who insisted on faith with Enlightenment values including the value of the individual human life, democratic governance in our institutions, embracing of the sciences, intellectual critiquing of scripture, and the right of the individual conscience in determining belief. Summed up, we often use the phrases, a faith with reason, or we must say, a faith subject to change and not sealed is a living tradition, as the name of our hymnal. I hate to start in the middle of a story, don't you? Struggling to figure out what's going on. To avoid that, I think we have to back way up in time to an early church father in Alexandria, Egypt, origin. We know that early Christianity was Catholic, but it was highly diverse in theologies and doctrines. That is, until the Council of Nicaea in 312 CE, Common Era, Emperor Constantine forced the Church Fathers to create a common creed for all Christendom, 
the Nicene Creed, to stop all that bickering within the church and for him politically to unify the Holy Roman Empire. Origen was highly respected and influential, yet he was put in prison and tortured as a heretic at the end of his life. What was his heresy? In Origen's words, he used the plural to speak of himself. Maybe that was a bigger sin than this, but anyway. We think that the goodness of God through the mediation of Christ will bring all creatures to the same, to one and the same end, all to a common end, not hell for some or heaven for others. For most Unitarian Universalists do claim today that our, all creatures share the same destiny, or as we resp read responsibly, a common destiny. In a greatly simplified narrative, the next well-known proponent of the goodness of God that brings all creatures to one and the same end and the theology of Christian Universalism was a Welshman named James Rayleigh. This is important to American Universalism because John Murray heard Rayleigh, a Methodist, preach universal salvation in London. And he became a disciple of Rayleigh's before he sailed for the colonies in 1770. His ship ran aground and he came ashore at Cape Goodluck in New Jersey. There, a good man of faith, Thomas Potter, had built a chapel to wait for a minister. This is a religious version of build it and they will come. Murray did fortuitously arrive at Cape Goodluck and Potter convinced him to preach in his chapel. John Murray became a central figure in the founding of the Universalist Church of America in 1793, and he organized the first Universalist congregation at Gloucester Mass. He preached that hope was inseparably linked to human courage and God's kindness. He would know, as he had left England after his wife and children had died, despondent. As much as we love, especially this month, to tell our founding stories, the Puritans in early 17th century New England were very stern people, definitely not easygoing. Their Christianity was greatly influenced by John Calvin's doctrine of election. He maintained that all humans are born depraved as a result of original sin. No wonder, spare the rod, spoil the child, that came embedded in religious and parental psyches. John Calvin's doctrine of election holds only those elected or chosen by God before they were born with no salvation after death. Those not chosen by God would not be saved regardless of the lives they led. A little more than 150 years later in New England, Universalist John Murray 
was preaching God's benevolence, humankind's free will, and the dignity rather than the depravity of the human nature. And other liberal American ministers began to emphasize this uh, universalist belief. By 1791, one year after John Murray had preached at Cape Good Luck, 19-year-old Hosea Ballou was also preaching universalist sermons. Hosea was a country boy born in a small town in New Hampshire. Yet he became one of the most influential figures in American religious life in the 19th century, and he became the foremost theologian Spokes, theological spokesman for universalism. Ballou, the 11th child of a Calvinist Baptist preacher and farmer, with very little former education and little knowledge of universal theologies, reasoned by reading the very same scripture as his father, that God, as a loving father, would save all of his children. I am impressed that Ballou didn't accept his religion secondhand. Imagine the pressure. His father is preaching Calvinist um, Christianity, as are his brother, as are his neighbors, believing it where many found condemnation and hell in the Bible, Ballou found forgiveness and love and hope. At 22, Ballou was ordained and for the next 15 years was an, or an itinerant circuit-riding minister, mostly in Vermont, I can't imagine. During this period of circuit-riding, he prepared and published his small book, a treatise on atonement. In his treatise, Ballou focused on what he considered orthodoxy's weakest point, the doctrine of substitutionary atonement, i.e., that Jesus' death paid for God, paid God for human sin. Ballou saw men and women struggling to turn toward moral good and away from the sins that separated them from a loving God. Ballou regarded sin as limited and therefore far less serious than something deserving of infinite hell and of his Orthodox colleagues. He believed that most human be the most human beings can do is come to the best understanding of moral good that is possible and act accordingly. Sin to him, therefore, is not acting, is not acting for discerned moral good. Orthodoxy's doctrine of atonement requires. Christ atoning for humanity's sin through his death and thereby reconciling an appeased God with humanity. Hosea Ballou, though, thought on the other hand that Jesus' death released, I love this thought, Jesus' death released a great spirit of love into the world, making men and women who were receptive to the spirit better able 
to atone for their own sins and be reconciled with God. It was humanity that needed to be reconciled to God, not God to humanity. And beyond this atoning spirit of love was available not only to Christians, but to all people, irrespective of names, sects, S-E-C-T-S, denominations, people, or kingdoms. In no case would anyone be sent to eternal punishment by a loving God. No sin was that great. Salvation was universal. Preaching to this theme of salvation for all, irrespective of character, he made his point with a simple illustration. These are his words. Your child has fallen into the mire, and its body and its garments are defiled. You cleanse it and array it in clean robes. The query is, do you love your child because you have washed it? Or did you wash it because you loved it? God loves all of his children, Mr. Ballou, Reverend Ballou said, no matter what dirt they may have gotten into. Ballou began his religious life as a Trinitarian, but early on he became Unitarian in theology in recognition of the dependence of Christ on God. Eventually he believed in the full humanity of Jesus, as many of us do, but there were strong differences between Ballou's anti-Trinitarian universalism and Christianity of the leading Unitarian of the day, actually another hero of mine, but he didn't shine too brightly at this point, William Ellery Channing. Channing spoke of incorrigible sinners, but to the universalist Ballou, with his firm belief in the deity of eternal love, no, God, no child of God could be incorrigible. For a large part of Blue's ministry, sadly, our Harvard-educated Unitarian elite did not treat the self-educated Blue very well. Blue's no-hell theology was not the same as Murray's, or others who were preaching universalism. Blue became convinced that sin was confined to life, to life on earth, and that future retribution did not exist. Appealing to the stories of the patriarchs of the Old Testament is proof, Ballou adopted his radical position that human beings are uh, rewarded for good behavior in this life and suffer for their mi misdeeds in this life. At death, all are transformed by the power of God's love as they enter into eternity. Ballou's opponents began to call this death and glory, disparagingly. But death and glory doesn't sound so bad to me. Blue's little book, A Treatise on Atonement, was first printed in 1805 and made a strong and immediate impact. Today we can read his treatise online. 
I find it amazingly enlightened and pertinent Christianity. Ballou was quickly recognized as the leader of the Universalist movement. He left his circuit riding to accept a call to settled ministries in New Hampshire, Salem, and Boston, where he drew large crowds and earned respect from the Unitarians. In 1845, after preaching his hopeful message, Ballou retired from the day-to-day -day leadership of his Boston church. Toward the end of his 35, ministry, 35 years ministry in Boston, Blue wrote against capital punishment, and he supported vigorous anti-slavery preaching. Blue continued to hold to his belief that only when humanity became convinced of God's eternal love, this is a message for us today, and his determination to save all souls, would evil be overcome, life on earth would be transformed. Hosea Ballou and the Universalists did, and still do, strive to love the hell out of the world. Father Ballou lived on for another six years, deeply honored and respected, the elder statesman of Universalism. When he died in Boston in 1852, there were many tributes, none more apt than that of the great Unitarian minister, Theodore Parker, whom I'm sure you've heard of. He went through the land proclaiming his great truth, and he has wrought a revolution in the thoughts of my, and minds of men more mighty than any politician. In his preface for a 1942 edition of the Atonement, John C. Adams wrote that the Treatise on Atonement is one of the great books of American theology and the first American book to anticipate all of the essential points of liberal theology. This story of Hosea Ballou and those of other justice-minded universalists need to be told over and over, lest we forget we did not make ourselves. We are not the first to suffer, rebel, fight, love, and die. Amen. <laughs>